We have been studying through the life of the most remarkable man who ever walked the face of the earth, and that man is Jesus Christ. And we're studying his life up close in great detail so we can understand who he really is, present tense, by who he was when he was on the earth. And, and while it's impossible to cover all the angles in the full depth of Christ, I don't think you could do that in a lifetime. Our desire is every week to just know him a little bit more, to draw closer to him a little bit more, and walk out of here with a deeper understanding of this amazing God that we serve, Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing through this series, I Am Jesus. And so this week we're going to look at two things. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to push the pause button on our story and examine one of the most controversial beliefs in all of Christianity. One of the most controversial beliefs is this, the virgin birth, that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. That is a controversial belief. And as I was studying this, I realized again when I was putting it together, you know, if if you're a Christian, you believe some things that are kind of unbelievable. Kind of unbelievable. When you stop and really think about it, this is an amazing claim that Jesus' Father is in heaven. The man, Jesus Christ, on the earth had no human father genetically. That's a stunning, stunning claim. And so we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at why that claim matters so much in our faith. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to take a look at our story so far through the eyes of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the human foster dad of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at how things have been going on from his perspective. So Christianity is full of controversial claims. I, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but people find some of what we believe a little bit controversial. And the Bible starts with perhaps the most controversial claim of all in Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a controversial verse, and I love the fact that it's the first verse in the Bible. It's been well said that if you can be okay with Genesis 1-1, you'll be okay with the rest of the book. You really will. You'll be able to believe everything else. But if you can't believe that everything began in God, through God, you're going to have serious problems believing everything else. That's probably the most controversial claim in the Bible. The most controversial claim about Jesus Christ, personally, would be that he rose from the dead. That's a very controversial claim. But the second most controversial claim is the virgin birth. And this is on your outlines. This is the doctrine of the virgin birth, that Mary was a virgin who was made pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit and was still a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. And non-believers find that idea absolutely crazy. And if you're not a believer, I understand why you find that crazy. I really do. I, I, I get it. But we're going to dive into this a little bit today. You know, in, in 2005, there was a rising star in North American evangelical circles. He's a pastor named uh, Rob Bell. Some of you might have heard of him. And Rob Bell wrote a book called Velvet Elvis that really captured the imagination of a lot of people, including myself. He's a, he's a brilliant writer. Very creative, very easy to read. And he wrote this book called Velvet Elvis, which is all about sort of thinking about your faith from a different angle. And the reason it got so much attention is that every single one of us loves the idea that we have an understanding on something that nobody else has. I mean, is is there anything better than like sharing something and being like, have you thought about this? And everyone in the room goes, no, I've never thought about it that way. You're like, yeah, you haven't. 
And you just, you just feel like you've got this amazing, profound insight. And so Rob Bell's book sort of just really fed into that part of, of, of all of us in our flesh and our ego and our pride that made us feel like, man, I, I have a, a unique understanding of my faith. I'm looking at it from different angles. But he wrote about the virgin birth, and this is what he wrote. He proposed a hypothetical situation, and this is what he says. He says, what if Jesus has a real earthly biological father named Larry, and archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of the Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time. So what Rob Bell is saying, he's saying, so, so what if, um, you know, it turns out that it was really just an invented idea. Uh, it was just a bit of mythology that the writers of the Gospels threw in because there was a lot of talk about this sort of thing in other pagan religions at the time. And Rob Bell goes on and he, he says in, his, in this book, Velvet Elvis, he says, you know what, it wouldn't really be that big of a deal because Jesus would still be God and it wouldn't really affect our faith. It wouldn't have a huge impact. So his argument is that the virgin birth is a theological non-essential. In other words, that it wouldn't change anything. And that kind of thinking really does appeal to our pride because we go, you know what, I have, I have an enlightened understanding. I'm so brilliant. I, I understand something on this that most people don't understand. Most people are there stomping their foot saying this is an essential, we can't cave on this. But I, I understand that it's a theological non-essential. It wouldn't really change anything. And we all need to, to open our minds I know that was true for me because when I first read it, I thought, man, what a, what a great point. You know, I can't wait to talk about this with people and sound really smart and feel really smart. This is, this is good stuff. So let's talk about this, though. But what would the implications be if the virgin birth were not true? So R- Rob Bell's not the first person to propose this. Every pretty much argument against standard Christian theology has been around for hundreds of years. There's really nothing new being proposed. They just come around in cycles every hundred years or every couple of hundred years. There's nothing new under the sun. So what are the actual implications if the virgin birth is not true? When you begin to look at this, you're going to change your mind very, very quickly about a couple of things if you agree with Rob Bell. The first thing is this. You can put this on your outline. The first implication would be Jesus was born through sin. That would be the first implication. The alternative to the virgin birth is what you have to look at. So what's the alternative? If it's not a virgin birth conceived by the Holy Spirit, then what is the explanation? Well, the explanation is that Mary cheated on her betrothed husband, Joseph, and had sex outside of marriage, and Jesus was created through sin. That is the alternate explanation. So the first implication would be that Jesus was born through sin. The second implication would be that Christianity was founded on a lie. Because now we have a young woman who's cheated on her betrothed husband and sinned by having sex out of wedlock. She's gotten pregnant and now she needs to cover it up. So as if that's not bad enough, now you have a woman whose cover story is not, hey, I was raped. The cover story she goes with is, Gabriel the angel visited me. I'm carrying God inside of me. And this is all the work of the Holy Spirit. 
This is getting really bad really fast. You've got Jesus born in sin, and now you have a woman whose explanation to cover up her sin, whose lie, is pretty much the biggest blasphemy that you could ever come up with. Then she takes this kid, raises him as God, and tells everybody that he's God and worships him as God. So if Mary's life as the mother of Jesus is founded on lies, then she's, she's a con artist, and neither she nor her son should be trusted on anything they say relating to the circumstances of his birth. So the second implication would be that Christianity is founded on a lie. And the third implication would be that the Bible is unreliable. The Bible is unreliable. That would be the third implication. Because in an argument where we say, what if DNA testing happened? Or what if we found something new? What you're implying is you're implying that there are things out there that are a higher authority than the Word of God. So DNA testing would disprove the Bible, hypothetically, implying that DNA testing is a higher authority than the Word of God. And you're implying that the Word of God is no longer perfect. It's possibly containing mistakes or outright lies. And we're actually witnessing in modern Christianity the implications of this line of thinking. There's several major touchpoint cultural issues going on right now. And the solution that people have proposed is, well, well, let's, ju- let's just change what the Bible says in that one section. Let- let's come up with an explanation to make it say something else. And here's the problem. If you can do that with one part of the Bible, why, on the most basic level of logic, would you build your entire life on the rest of it, assuming that it's true? If this is wrong, if this is a lie, why should we believe that salvation is true? Why should we believe that the resurrection is true? Why should we believe anything? It's either the word of God that you can build your life on or it's not. It's a huge implication. The implication would be that the Bible is unreliable. And we know that the Bible is emphatic that Mary was a virgin who gave birth to Jesus Christ. Nobody argues the fact that that's what the Bible says. There's nobody saying that's not what it's saying. Everybody agrees that's what it says. The question is, is it true or not? So you're faced with the issue of either the Bible is lying or we believe that the Bible is telling the truth. Uh, J. Gresham Macon wrote a book called The Virgin Birth of Christ and he makes two comments on this issue that sum it up beautifully. He says this first. He says, everyone admits that the Bible represents Jesus as having been conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. The only question is whether in making that representation the Bible is true or false. And then he says, if the Bible is regarded as being wrong in what it says about the birth of Christ, then obviously the authority of the Bible in any high sense is gone. Uh, Dr. Albert Moeller says this. He says, Christians must face the fact that a denial of the virgin birth is a denial of Jesus as the Christ. The Savior who died for our sins was none other than the baby who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. The virgin birth does not stand alone as a biblical doctrine. It is an irreducible part of the biblical revelation about the person and work of Jesus Christ. With it, the gospel stands or falls. So just to recap, when we talk about theology, we're just talking about what we believe. And when we talk about doctrine, a doctrine is one specific piece of theology. It's one specific belief. So we're talking about the doctrine of the virgin birth. And there are, there are doctrines that we would call non-essential. One of those examples would be how the world is all going to end. There are major differing opinions within Christianity 
about how everything is going to go down. We all agree that we end up in heaven. We all agree that there is a second coming of Christ. But there's some major differences. And if we differ on that, we can still be friends. We can still be believers together. We can still break bread together. We're still part of the same family. That's a theological non-essential. The virgin birth is not a theological non-essential. It's an absolute essential. If you deny this, you are denying the authority of the Bible, the truth of the scripture, and Jesus' divinity, essentially. So we can't really have a differing opinion on this. This is what Christianity believes. If you're not a believer, that's okay. I don't expect you to hold the same beliefs. But if you are a believer, this is what Christians believe. This is what the Bible teaches. It's a theological essential. So let me share from my own experience where this all leads. Because, you know, I, I read this book. I read Velvet Elvis. And like I said, I love, love feeling smart while I was reading it. So I just sort of drank it up. Later on, I had to spend some time uh, talking to the Lord and repenting for this. For first going to my mind instead of going to God's word. So I read something. And instead of saying, God, God, what does your word say about this? I went straight to my own mind and pondered it and thought about it with my own quote-unquote wisdom instead of going to the Word of God. And I realized that that is always our tendency as human beings because what we're doing when we're saying that is we're saying, you know what, I'm actually smart enough and wise enough to discern whether this is true or not rather than using the Word of God to guide my life. So the lesson I learned in that, again, was, man, we need to go to the Word of God. We need to go and see what does God's word say about this and begin from that perspective. So this kind of thinking, which seems very innocuous, seems very undangerous. Let me, let me tell you where it leads. Rob Bell wrote that book in 2005. In 2011, Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, where he basically put forth, forth his case, his argument, as to why he believes hell doesn't exist. That's quite a leap. That's quite a leap. So this guy has gone from having just what he thinks is an intellectual discussion that's harmless to now writing a book that, according to biblical definition, makes him a false teacher and a false prophet. And the kind of guy scripture says you need to kick out of your church. That's how serious the Bible is about it. And now there's people reading his writings and saying it's okay because there's no hell. It's all going to work out in the end. And that's where this leads, and that's why I want us to understand and just push the pause button for a second on the story and make sure that we're all on the same page, that this is an essential. This is a core belief that we have that we can never compromise on. And beginning to compromise on an area of biblical truth is a slippery slope that leads to some very, very dangerous places quicker than any of us would believe. Always trust God's word. Always seek answers in God's word. It will always lead you to the truth. Always. There's a couple of claims against the virgin birth that I just want to address while while we're on the topic. And and one of the most popular claims is basically the idea that, you know, uh, Rob Bell actually alludes to it in Velvet Elvis. He says, you know, there was a lot of other mythologies around at the time that had virgin births in them these supernatural births. And so Christianity was really just borrowing an idea that already existed in contemporary mythology and had been around for several hundred years. 
Anybody ever heard this argument before about it? Before? It's a very, very popular argument. And at first, the stories look very similar. But when you take a look at the comparison between the virgin birth we have in Scripture and all the other pagan mythologies, some differences emerge very, very quickly. Because almost all of the pagan mythologies involve a sexual encounter between a god and a demigod. So the first difference is they involve a sexual encounter. Um, and they also involve a god and a demigod, kind of like someone we would consider a modern-day superhero, like we have superheroes in our mythology. That's basically what a demigod would be. And so the union is sexual, and it's not generally between a god and a human being. It's between a god and a demigod. And even if you found a a long-lost mythology involving a human woman, the woman would have no claim to virginity based on logic. If she was a virgin before the sexual encounter, she certainly wasn't afterward. Even... Even in the other stories where there isn't a physical sexual encounter, there's still a physical interaction of some type between the God and the demigod or the human, and the driving force is lust. Every mythology, every mythology, they all stand in stark contrast to the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth, which is free from lust and not driven by physical attraction. The Christian doctrine also has Mary being a virgin before and after being made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. These are radical differences. To help you understand how how different our belief is, think how offensive we find questions like, did God lust after Mary? Did the Holy Spirit sexually impregnate Mary? How offensive we find these questions is the evidence of how different the Christian doctrine is from every other mythology that's out there. That's basically as an argument, not a valid argument. It's just something people quote who don't go and do all the actual research. You can put this on your outline. The answer is the virgin birth is conceptually unprecedented. In other words, even as a concept, nobody had even had that idea in mythology before. One of the other popular myths about Mary is that she cheated on Joseph and had sex with a Roman soldier, and then everything else was her cover-up story. You might have heard this one as well. This one's a little easier. There is absolutely zero evidence to support this. It was actually a rumor. It was gossip. It was a smear campaign started by Jewish religious leaders to counteract the gospel. Literally what it was. It was old school TMZ. There's absolutely nothing to back it up. In fact, I want to show you something very interesting. This is actually on your outlines. The, The Greek word for virgin is the word parthenos. Parthenos. And in this rumor that was started about Mary, they actually named the soldier that she allegedly connected with. And the soldier's name was Pandera. And if you actually look at Greek, what they're doing is they only have to change the N and the R in the word Parthenos to come up with the name Pantera. And you see the A there, but that's just following grammatical rules in Greek. So what it was, is it was literally a parody. Even the name that they invented for the soldier was a parody on the Greek word for virgin. It was intended to be a smear campaign against Mary, and there's absolutely no evidence for it. It was and is a baseless rumor. And you can put that on your outlines. It's a baseless rumor. And then there's one last claim. And th- this, this is really interesting. Some say that it was all faked because they wanted to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, so they were trying to stage it. Especially in particular Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So some people said, well, well, you know, they, they read the Old Testament prophecy and they said, well, if we're going to fake a Messiah, we've got to do it this way. We've got to come up with a story of a virgin birth. This is really interesting. This, this, this verse is actually a dual prophecy. In other words, it has two applications. This is most prominent in the Psalms. You can read the Psalms and there's prophecies in there that apply to David, but they also apply to Jesus Christ. And this is a dual prophecy because this verse refers to Jesus, but it also refers to the birth of King Hezekiah in the Old Testament. And in Jewish theology at the time, they didn't view it as a dual prophecy. They just viewed it as having been about King Hezekiah, and so it was fulfilled. There's multiple prophecies that we look at in the Old Testament and say, oh, this is prophetic of the Messiah, but we only know that being on the other side of Jesus' time on earth. They weren't necessarily looking at that, at all of those prophecies, and saying this one's clear. They knew some of them, but some of them they didn't understand. And popular understanding at the time was this prophecy had been fulfilled. And contrary to what most people think, most of the evidence points to Jews not expecting a virgin birth. They weren't expecting that. They thought the Messiah would just be born normal, human kind of way. They knew the lineage to look for, but nobody was really even expecting a virgin birth. So there was absolutely no pressure to fake it. And one of the ways that that we know this is is because when the angel comes to Mary and the angel says, this is what's going to happen, Mary is so puzzled by what Gabriel is telling her because she's never even heard of this concept that the Messiah will be born to a virgin. It wasn't the popular understanding. And in the whole dialogue involving Mary, there's no talk of blasphemy. There's no concern that she's going to be stoned for blasphemy. The concern is she's going to be stoned for adultery. So there was zero pressure to fake a virgin birth because the Jews were not even expecting a virgin birth. They weren't even expecting it. So when you examine this issue in detail, you'll find that there's not enough similarity to any pagan mythologies to simply dismiss it that way. You'll find that there's no substance to the rumors that Mary had sex with a Roman soldier and tried to cover it up. And you'll also find there was no pressure to fake a virgin birth because nobody was even expecting it. Those are probably the three most popular issues people bring up to contest the virgin birth. This is a theological essential, and this is one of those things we've just got to know, we've got to believe, we've got to get. And so now we're going to shift gears and we're going to jump back into our story from the perspective of Joseph. So so Joseph is most likely a teenager. He's a young man. He's living in Nazareth. Nazareth is an obscure village of no more than probably 400 people, no more than five acres in the seaside region of Galilee. Joseph is not necessarily a carpenter. He's what's called a tecton, which is just a word for someone who's a craftsman and a builder. Popular mythology that's extra biblical says he was a carpenter, but we just know he was some type of craftsman and builder. Joseph's father was the same thing, and that's what Jesus was as well. Most of his business comes from a bigger city a short distance away. And Joseph is just a normal, good guy. He's a normal, good guy. Everything about his life is pretty normal. He's described in Scripture as being a righteous man. So he honors God, he fears God, but he's about as normal as he gets. He's betrothed to Mary because they're in a village of 400 people, and so I guess marriage is just a process of elimination. 
So that's all taken care of. He's betrothed to marry Mary. Mary is very young, probably 14 around that sort of age, potentially. And then Jesus happens. And then Jesus happens. And we don't know the exact timeline. But if you, if you would, just allow your imagination to take you there. You are Joseph. You're going through your normal life. And then one day, the woman you're engaged to, betrothed to, Mary, comes up to you and says, um, we need to talk. We need to talk. And I don't know that there has ever been a conversation that any human being could be less prepared for than the conversation that took place between Mary and Joseph. There, there's no segue into what Mary has to share, right? There, there, there's no way to just ease into this, you know? There's no, no like, so, um, what do you think about angels, you know? Why do you ask? No, no reason. No reason. So Mary comes to Joseph at some point and shares this. I have been visited by the angel Gabriel. I have been made pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and I'm carrying God. Isn't that great? I, I don't even know what Joseph did in response. What's a follow-up question to that? Where do you go with that? What we know from Scripture is that Joseph doesn't believe Mary. He, he doesn't believe her. He doesn't believe her. And I can't say I really blame him. Anybody here buying that? If your girlfriend comes to you and says that, right? Great news. I'm pregnant, but don't worry. Don't worry. It's all on the up and up. It's the long-awaited Messiah. I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. We're still good. True love waits. I mean, just, there's, <laughs> there's no way any of us are buying that. So what Joseph is clearly thinking is, is I really believe Joseph isn't angry. Joseph is just thinking, this poor, poor girl. He's thinking she's, she's clearly made a terrible decision. She's gone and gotten herself pregnant. And she's come up with, the worst cover story I've ever heard in my life. And he's thinking, you know what? She's going to be dealing with the consequences of this decision for a long, long time. A long, long time. Make sure you put on your outlines that we know from his response, Joseph doesn't believe Mary. Joseph is also thinking this. He's thinking, I feel bad for her too because I think she might be clinically insane. I mean, this, it, if you're going to make a cover story, like we said, this is a terrible cover story. It's an absolutely terrible cover story. It, it would be like your mom catching you, you know, with pie all over your face and a half-eaten pie, and your excuse is Superman flew in the window and ate the pie. It's on that sort of level of logic, you know. So Joseph is thinking this, this girl has, she's got problems. She's got problems and you know, God is good because I almost married that. He's thinking, thank you, God. Dodged a bullet there. If this situation were playing out today, this is something very interesting. Malcolm Muggeridge observed this. He said, he said, it is in point of fact extremely improbable under existing conditions that Jesus would have been permitted to be born at all. Mary's pregnancy in poor circumstances and with the father unknown would have been an obvious case for an abortion. 
and her talk of having conceived as a result of the intervention of the Holy Ghost would have pointed to the need for psychiatric treatment and made the case for terminating her pregnancy even stronger. Thus, our generation, needing a Savior more perhaps than any other has ever existed, would be too humane to allow one to be born. That's the truth, isn't it? Nobody would believe that today. There would be drugs. There would be recommended procedures. There would be a committal to a mental institution of some sort. Very unlikely that Jesus would even be able to make it today, given the way our society works. So most theologians agree that Joseph really had, had two options at this point. He could have pressed charges. They are legally bound in marriage, even though they're betrothed and haven't had the wedding yet and haven't come together sexually. Joseph could have pressed charges, and the punishment for adultery would have been either stoning to the point of death, or they would have stripped her naked, dressed her in rags, dragged her to the city gate, and beat her in full view of all the other young women in the village to make an example out of her. It's Joseph option number one. His option number two would be to just simply divorce her, to terminate and annul the marriage and take care of the legal side of things and just say, you know, let's just walk away from this. Thank God I dodged a bullet and we'll just never speak of it again. We read in Matthew 1, starting in verse 18, we read this. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, other translations say a righteous man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So Joseph decides, I'm just, I'm just going to quietly get a divorce. I'm not going to talk about it. She's going to be dealing with the consequences of her sin for a long time. I don't need to punish her. He's a, he's a merciful guy, and he's a righteous man. He seeks to live by the law of God, and he doesn't want to see Mary suffer. But then in, in, in verse 20, this happens. But while he thought about these things, so we get the idea that Joseph, is, he's a thoughtful man. He's not a rash man. While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And did not know her, so they didn't come together sexually till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. I, I'm sure that waking up from that dream, Joseph is full of awe and amazement. Not many of us are able to say, listen, an angel of God came to me in a dream. So he's amazed. But very quickly, the reality of the situation sets in. All the fear, all the practical concerns. And all of a sudden, Joseph finds himself in the exact same situation that Mary is in. God is doing something amazing. God is doing something incredible. But like Mary, he knows that nobody is going to believe him. Nobody's going to believe him. His own parents probably aren't going to believe him. They and everybody else are going to view him as a fool 
who married a woman who got knocked up by somebody else. Can you imagine the story around town? Joseph is marrying Mary. Yeah, she told him that the Holy Spirit made her pregnant. And he believed her. What an idiot. What an idiot, man. How gullible can you be? Well, he's getting what he deserves. That would have been the talk around town. In a village of around 400 people, good luck keeping a secret, right? Good luck keeping a secret. So they live in this constant, almost bipolar state of when they get together, I, I wonder, did, did Mary and Joseph talk about it? Did, they must have talked and said things like, what do you think he's going to be like? Like, will we have to go buy food? Or will it just like appear every night? Like, like they must have talked. Like, how do you think this is going to work? Is, are, are we looking at like a little league prodigy here? I mean, what, what, what's this guy going to do? We, we wonder things like if he's going to work with Joseph, his dad. It's like, well, is he going to make the most perfect furniture that has ever been crafted? You know, every angle is exactly right. No protractor needed. It just comes out perfect. You know, in, in an age where they don't have motorized tools, is he going to be the only guy making perfectly level chairs where every leg is exactly the same length what's it going to look like they must have got together and talked and, and been excited and then constantly lived in the tension of as soon as that conversation is over there's nobody in their world close to them that can share in their joy they've got this enormous joy inside of them and so few people to share it with and there's a parallel there even to sometimes how God works in our lives. And sometimes God does something great in us. And we have to deal with the same pain that Mary and Joseph did. Where maybe the people closest to us, maybe even our own family, our closest friends, do not share in the joy that we have at all. They think of us what people thought of Mary and Joseph. So gullible. Delusional. So sad. And we have to deal with that pain that we are overwhelmed with joy at what Jesus has done in our lives. But that joy is not shared by a lot of people. Mary and Joseph lived through that. They walked through that. How many times over the, the coming months must Joseph have thought to himself, did I just like imagine that dream? Was that, was that Gabriel or was that like the pizza from the night before? Like... How many times did he doubt and wonder, was this, was this really, really real? And yet we see Joseph respond with simple obedience. He responds with simple obedience. He takes Mary as his wife and follows the instructions of the angel. He knew that he was signing up to basically marry a single mom and raise somebody else's child. And so here's what we know about Joseph. We know, we know that Joseph is a real man. He's a real man because I, I don't know that there are many things you can do as a man that are more courageous than taking on raising somebody else's child as your own. Duplicating on earth what God has done for you. The way that God brought you into his family, you're going to bring somebody else into yours. That is courageous. And that is one of the most beautiful examples we have on earth of the love and kindness and compassion of Jesus. One of the most beautiful examples we have. So if you're a single guy here today, I want to encourage you, man, do not count out single moms. Jesus was born to a single mom, basically. But he had a dad because somebody said, you know what? This is the will of God, so I'm up for it. 
I got to believe that somehow God is going to make me up for this challenge. God's going to give me what I need to do this. I don't think Joseph thought to himself, this is going to be so easy. I'm totally ready to raise God. I don't think he was thinking that. You can't really go to the bookstore and be like, I know you guys have books on parenting. Do you have anything on parenting the Messiah? Just anything anything like that, you know? Techniques, just a little help. Uh, He couldn't go to the synagogue and be like, yeah, do you guys have a support group for parents of God? And nobody else was going to share his experience, and he knew that. But he said, you know what? God called me to do this. So somehow, even though I don't understand, even though I feel ill-equipped, I got to believe God's going to take care of this for me. And if you're a single mom, don't think God's done with you. Don't think God's done with you for, for even a second. God is in the business of making a family out of broken pieces. That's what he does. That's what we are. We're broken pieces, broken people brought into a family of God and made one. That's just the way God is, and he loves to do that. Don't limit God, and don't forget that nothing is ever impossible for God. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we read this, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so here's what I love. You have Caesar Augustus, and we won't get deep into it, but Caesar Augustus is a guy who loves himself, basically. He's an expert at loving himself. He's like, I love me some me. This is Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus is a guy who says, man, I'm going to flex my muscle a little bit. I'm going to call a census. I want to know how many people are here so I can tax them. Everybody go back to the hometown of your ancestry. So for Joseph, that's Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus is there thinking he's the man. He has no idea that in doing that, he is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, getting Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, where the Messiah has to be born in order to fulfill prophecy. And I share that because when God has a plan, when God has a plan for your life, you might feel like there are people above you who have more power who can mess that plan up, but God loves to use people in positions of authority to accomplish his purposes even when they have no idea that they're doing it. So Caesar Augustus says, I'm going to do this because I'm great. I'm going to call a census. And God's saying, yeah, you are. Of course you are. Exactly like I want you to. No, because I want to. Yeah, exactly like I want you to. God loves to do that sort of thing all the time. Nothing hinders the plans of God if we'll be faithful and obedient to him. So there's this census called, and this is happening at some point in Mary's third trimester. Things are getting big. Everything's getting uncomfortable. We don't know exactly when, but we know at some point in the third trimester, and they end up going to Bethlehem where she gives birth. There's a lot of evidence to actually suggest that she wasn't necessarily required to go with him. She wasn't necessarily required to go with him, but she doesn't want to be left alone. She doesn't want to face all the gossip. She definitely doesn't want to give birth alone. Joseph is pretty much the only other person in the world outside of Elizabeth and Zacharias who can really share in the joy 
of what's going on. So she wants to be with Joseph. So they make the journey. The journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem was more than 70 miles of mountainous terrain, and they would have covered 15 to 18 miles per day. It would have been around a five-day journey with a very pregnant woman. That's a lot of bathroom breaks. I'm just saying. That's a lot of bathroom breaks. So for Mary and Joseph, just, just let your mind go there. Can, can you imagine the contrast between the glory that they've been promised that they're going to witness. So the angel says, you guys are going to see the glory of God. You're going to see it. They have this amazing promise, and yet here they are, day three, day four, trudging through the mountains, uncomfortable, feeling a million miles away from anything that could be called a blessing. A million miles away. They just know that they've got some promises from God. And right now their circumstances don't feel very blessed. But here's what we know from the other side of history. We know that the story is just getting started. We know that right around the corner is a sky filled with angels singing the glory of the son that Mary would give birth to. We know that there are wise and wealthy men making a journey looking at the stars, coming to honor the king. We know that the supernatural is at work right now, and they are right around the corner from seeing the glory of God with their own eyes. They're right there. They're right there. But where they are right now, a rocky mountain road, uncomfortable, not that happy, not feeling very blessed. We're going to talk more about that next week, but there's a huge lesson in there for us. That man, when you get a promise from God, God's going to do something in your life. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope because you look at where you are right now and you say, there's, there's no way. I'm a million miles from blessed right now. A million miles. You don't know what is just around the corner. You have no idea what God wants to do. But I can tell you it's amazing. I don't know where you are in your story. Maybe, maybe you don't even know that God has promises for your life. If, if that's you today, I just want you to know that the promises of the word of God is that God wants to bring you into his family, period. No asterisk, no qualifiers. No, you're not qualified if you've done this. Doesn't matter what you've done. He wants to bring you in to his family. And all you have to believe is that he loves you that he died for you, that he was punished instead of you, and you can enjoy your relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. That's available to you. If that's you today, you're going to have a chance in a couple of minutes to respond and join the family of God today. Maybe you've accepted his invitation. You've been faithfully following Christ, and you've got some promises, but, but, but right now you don't feel very blessed. You'd say, man, it, if I were to be honest about where I'm at, I'm on that rocky path right now. A million miles from blessed. That's where I'm at right now. Maybe you're there and you're saying, God, where's, where's your promise? Where's your promise? I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't see it coming. Let me encourage you. It's just around the corner. You will see the glory of God in your life with your own eyes. Don't lose heart. Hold on to his promise. 
story is just getting started. And maybe this morning you've been following Jesus for such a long time that you know the pattern by now. You know the story. You know how it goes. God wants to do something. He wants to draw you closer to him. He wants you to take a greater step of faith. You're going to go through the rocky path for a while, and he's going to come through. Maybe you've seen him do it dozens of times in your own life. And so when you find yourself on the rocky path, you don't lose heart anymore. You say, I I know what's just around the corner. I know what's just around the corner. I'm okay. He's going to be faithful just like he always is. If that's you this morning, what a great opportunity this is just to say thank you to God. Just to thank him. Just to look back and say, you brought me through this, and you brought me through this, and you brought me through this, and you brought me through this. You are so faithful. Just to maybe allow your mind in this coming time of worship to look back on the goodness of God, what he's done for you, and just say thank you.